Radio Islam, the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. We're also streaming at WCEV1450.com. Now, for those of you who are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. We're on every night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central. And you can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You will find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And make sure you do yourself a kindness and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. You have missed out on many, many, many great conversations with truly interesting and informative people. So, wherever you get your podcast, if that's iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, or SoundCloud, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. All right, Radio Islam family, last thing to tell you, for those of you who don't want to tweet or post or anything like that, you can give us a call. If you got a question or a comment that you would like to have brought into the conversation, you can do so by calling us at 312-750-1178. That is 312-750-1178. All right, Radio Islam family, tonight our guest is Ed Yanka. Um, he is the Director of Communications and Public Policy for the ACLU of Illinois. Now, for you, uh, I'm sure most of you know, but for almost 100 years, the ACLU has worked to defend and preserve the individual rights and liberties guaranteed by the Constitution and uh, under the laws of the United States. So Ed began his job with ACLU in June of 99. He serves as a primary spokesperson for the Civil Rights Advocacy Organization. He regularly uh, has appeared on television, radio uh, in Illinois and throughout the nation. He's also widely cited in newspapers and publications on legal and legislative matters related to the ACLU of Illinois priorities. So we are appreciative to have you here. How are you doing, Ed? I am well, Tariq. It's great to be here. Yes, yes. And there's is so much going on right now that... Um, that having you here is it's really great to just to, to unpack some of the things that, that we're looking at right now. Well, it's just it's I think it's great to talk about many of these issues with your audience, because I think um, you're right. There's so much to unpack and just having the opportunity, the time, and the space to do it is really appreciated. Yeah. So um, as many folks know, if you have if you have not been sitting in a closet or under a rock, um, uh, we've seen many images, very disturbing, many of them emotionally um, emotionally stressful for many people to see uh, children pulled from the arms of their mothers or children that have been taken away and then finally being reunited. Uh, and then also to know that there are still a great number of children who have yet to be re reunited with their parents. Right. So if we could um, maybe first begin with how did this particular brand of 
uh, immigration enforcement come about? Well, that's a that's a really good question. And, you know, one of the things that we're learning uh, as we've gone through this process over the last several uh, months is that, um, you know, is that is the see that that this is a process that the administration has really been rolling out slowly and surely and steadily uh, that then hit the accelerator uh, in the late spring of this year. Right. right. Um, for for the ACLU, uh we really first became aware of this uh, early this year in February uh, when we were when we l- were contacted about the story of Ms. L. I, I think probably many of your listeners have heard, you know, Ms. L is a, 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 a refugee uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, she came to the United States, presented herself for uh, asylum she was um she was she passed a credible fear test so she's broken no law right um she's put into a facility near San Diego she came into the port of San Diego she's uh held in a hotel in near the port of San Diego for a few days uh and then she and her daughter or she was her 10-year-old daughter is with her um one day are suddenly separated and her daughter was flown to Chicago uh, uh, we became aware of that, and our lawyers visited with with her in a uh, detention facility in Otay, California, near San Diego. Uh, they they filed suit on her behalf to be reunited with her daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, over the course of a few weeks, uh, as we talked about that case, you know, we heard all kinds of things. Um, this was a mistake. Uh, they shouldn't have been separated. Uh, this wasn't, you know, for an asylum seeker, this wasn't an appropriate thing. Uh, and, you know, come to find out over that period of time, we find out that there are dozens and, you know, maybe even a couple of hundred of these instances of parents being separated from their children at the southern border. Right. Um, and so the lawsuit we originally filed on behalf of Ms. L, and I'm happy to say that ultimately she was released and, and she and her daughter were reunited and, and are in a shelter here in Chicago, mm-hmm. um, you know, that ultimately... Uh, we expanded that suit. And then, um, you know, when the administration began this, quote unquote, zero tolerance program policy, right, right. which was that they were going to criminally prosecute anybody uh, who they determined had come over the border illegally. Uh, and when they began to do that, you know, when they when they got to the point that they were detaining people for criminal purposes, um, and and that is usually, you know, you serve whatever time you've served at the point you do the criminal prosecution. Um, the children were then separated and flown around the country. And, you know, those numbers ultimately got up to about 3,000. And I, I just wow. want to stop and think about that. Uh, just mention that for just a moment. Uh, for, for you or for Tariq or any of your listeners, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you have children, if you've ever been a child, and that includes most <laughs> of us, everybody. you know, right. um, or, or even as an adult, you have that moment when you're in the grocery store and there's a child, you come around the corner and there's a child standing there alone who clearly is distraught because they've been separated from their parents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and usually that lasts a few moments and then the mother comes or the father shows up and all is well and everybody's happy and, and, and there's no issue. That Think about that over the course of several months and several days in the a place. stars of separation. Right, right. Yeah. 
you know, uh, the, 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 you know, a, uh, an official with the Office of Refugee Resettlement uh, testified a week ago before the Senate Judiciary Committee in Washington and said that they had warned the administration of the harm that would the permanent damage that would be done to children and families by doing this. Right. Uh, and the administration went ahead with the policy anyway. You know, there and of course, there's been a lot of uh, talk about the intent behind it. Uh, and that being one of uh, to, to dissuade anybody from even thinking about coming in, uh, especially if they're coming with children, you know, as parents. Right. The most the most precious thing we have is our children. Um, but I want to go back to this idea, first of all, in seeking asylum, having to establish credible fear. Right. That test right there. Right. Could you talk a bit about that? Because there's also there's also been this change or a change that uh, seems to be coming with regard to uh, asylum seekers' ability to even ask for, right, to declare, to ask for asylum. Right. So could we start with the first with yes. the credible fear? Yeah. So, um, you know, under U.S. law, it, you can legally enter the United States to claim asylum. And I, I think it's really important because mm-hmm. you'll hear so much in, in, I think, some, you know, popular conservative media about the idea of, well, they're lawbreakers. Right. They've broken no law at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, a credible fear test is is that you have to be able to explain to a Customs and Border Patrol agent why you are seeking asylum in the United States. And there's a series of categories that you have to meet um, mm-hmm. under which, uh, you know, you can, in order to claim asylum, things that you have a what's called a credible fear that you will be harmed or killed uh, if you were to return to your country of origin. Right. And one of the issues that that often comes up in that, too, is the question as to whether or not the government in the home in your home country is able, capable or uh, willing uh, to stop um, the people who are threatening you or or would intervene in any way. So one of the things that we've seen right now in Central and Southern America, South America, is, you know, this idea that there are. Um, both gangs and paramilitary units that are threatening people, um, you know, narco traffic gangs and et cetera, that are threatening people, and that those gangs are not something that the government is able to control. They often threaten people, try to bring them into the gang. If people don't want to be in the gang, um, you know, they can be they can be murdered, or a family member can be murdered, and that is causing people to leave those countries where they've lived, resided, had a home, had a family, had stability for years. Take this dangerous track uh, and come to the United States. So the first thing is, is that you have to be able to credibly explain that mm-hmm. to an officer and demonstrate that you have a fear that if you were to be returned to your country, that you'd be injured um, or harmed or murdered. There's an entire legal process that takes place after that in which you have to demonstrate uh, that you are a candidate for asylum. One of the things uh, that has oft been a part of this and, and uh, you know, even more so in recent years is, is that people, for example, women have come to the United States uh, because they've been victims of domestic violence and, uh, you know, up to and including being threatened with death. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, General, uh, Attorney General Sessions has recently announced uh, that he is eliminating that as a reason that one can claim asylum in the United States. Wow. 
And and wow. the actually in another piece of litigation, the ACLU just filed a lawsuit yesterday challenging the elimination of of that criteria. Um, you know, first of all, it's gender based uh, largely, and and you know it it, it raises other uh, both legal and constitutional issues. So you know that process of asylum is is often one I think as is, is you really that was implicit in your question. Um, that's misunderstood in terms of that process that you have to go through just in the first pass and then in the pass, you know, afterwards. And I, and I should add quickly that, you know, for people who um, anybody who's ever, you know, seen or 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 followed an asylum case, you know, there's a there's a long period of time of collecting documents, of collecting yeah. testimonies, of collecting information about the country where uh, the person is fleeing from. Um, you know, it is a very difficult process. You know, we we aren't the United States is not granting asylum, um, you know, I, I just to use the colloquial term willy nilly to anybody. Right. Uh, it's a very difficult process. So the idea that somebody who enters the country uh, willing to go through that process trying to save their children from perhaps uh, uh, death or, or violence mm-hmm. um, is then subjected to this horror and this, this kind of torture uh, of being separated from their children is, is, is I think, really a, a corrosive thing. And uh, one last thing I'll say oh, um, is that, you know, that this idea that, that somehow if we were just cruel enough, if we were just mean enough mm-hmm. – if we did something that was so unthinkable and unspeakable mm-hmm. um, that it really would betray all of our values as Americans, yeah. that that would be the thing that would dissuade people from wanting to come here. It, it, it's just a, a, the kind of a notion that I can't imagine uh, that that most you know thinking Americans uh, really want to support. I, I, I'm you know I, I was just saying to a colleague today. Um, you know, you, you and I were talking before we went on about the way in which the immigration debate in this country is shifting. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things that's amazing is we put children in cages yeah. on the southern border mm-hmm. and separate, literally took them out of the arms of their mother and put them in cages. And we had a slight debate about whether or not that was okay. There were people who defended that position. What is wrong with the collective uh, consciousness? Right? And by the way. And the discourse. What, it, right. what is going on? And by the way, the majority members of the House of Republicans, mm-hmm. uh, the, yeah, the, uh, the majority Republicans in the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C., have never held a single hearing about this practice. Mm. Well, you know, that, that just speaks to the, the lack of um, the lack of commitment. Uh, and resolve to go beyond partisanship, right? Uh, and I mean, and that's and that's pretty clear for anybody, uh, anybody with a conscience, you know, uh, can see that. Um, and and for you to mention, I just have to reiterate this for just for us to just to keep it out there once again, particularly for those mothers. I, I wouldn't even say just mothers, but particularly for those parents who have come here to save their children from being executed, from being maimed, from being from from all type of unspeakable uh, realities that are taking place. And they bring their children here only to suffer the, uh, the, the horror of being separated from the child's here, uh, the children here. That in itself 
it should be enough. And, and, and I'm glad to see that actually that there is an outpouring, that there are people who are they're saying, you know what, uh, I, may, I may see immigration differently, but I, I can't sign off on this. I right. can't sign off on this. Right. So that's good to see that at least there's a line being drawn in, in the sand. But as it relates to uh, the progression of immigration policies uh, over administrations, right, and this immigration issue has been something that's been kind of just uh, kicked down a road uh, to, to a large degree, you know, from administration to administration. Uh, are, are there any comparisons that we can draw from the uh, immigration policy of the Obama administration to the uh, uh, to the Trump administration now, uh, the comparisons or contrasts um, that that you could point out. Yeah, I think there's a I think there's a couple of things. So first of all, uh, um, let's talk about just just with regards to children because that that obviously is at the core of this right. discussion. So one of the things that happened during the Obama administration is is that there was a few years ago you'll remember sort of an uptick and an influx for a time uh, of children. Um, unaccompanied minors yes. who came into the United States. Mm-hmm. And um, I think faced with that flood of, of unaccompanied minors, um, it can be said uh, that the Obama administration wasn't prepared for that and probably, uh, well, I shouldn't say probably, and didn't really have the facilities and the services available to deal with that with that influx of children. And there were issues that happened. You know, uh, kids were were detained for too long. Um, you know, some kids were ended up in courts. You know, again, not speaking the language at a very young age in immigration courts without a lawyer. Right. Um, you know, these kinds of things that that are just you know um, that I think none of us really were very happy with at the time i think that the distinction here in this instance is um that rather than the children showing up as unaccompanied minors the trump administration decided to make them unaccompanied by separating them from their parents right um and and, you know we've always had unaccompanied minors uh in you know enter the country it's always been a tough issue to deal with because of course of of, of the nature of young children being in a complex legal system and needing to be held somewhere. These are, these have always been challenging issues, but I think that's the, uh, that's the distinction. I think the other thing that we can say, uh, and I, I think this goes without, um, uh, without fear of any sort of contradiction is the, the, um, uh, the Obama administration was very rigid in terms of deporting people uh, largely people who had been convicted of a crime, um, who had committed criminal acts in the past, uh, they were somewhat aggressive in terms of deporting uh, people in that instance. And, you know, I think they often defended that by suggesting that these were people who'd been convicted of violent crimes, that the law, you know, that's who they were prioritizing were those sorts of people for for deportation. Right. I think that what we've seen in the Trump administration uh, in terms of deportation policy is to literally just to find and deport anybody that you can get your hands on. And how that's manifested itself is, as you 
you know, as, as, as your listeners will know, uh, there are people who have been going through immigration proceedings for years, sometimes yeah. for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they may have along the way gotten a final order of deportation, but then that's been stayed while, uh, you know, the courts have considered new evidence or some other claim or, you know, some other legal process as part of that. Um, and those people, by and large, uh, those individuals, by and large, have generally checked in with uh, immigration officials. They have, you know, they, 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 they've reported they where they live. they are the easiest ones to come get, especially. And, and, and you know what? I have to mention this real quick. For those who may, may or may not know, uh, so this process, there's a fee that goes along with this. So and it could it can be uh, $500, I think, and in some cases, or, or if that's just a standard flat rate. But there's a. There is a there. There's a receipt, right? Their right. cash registers ringing. Yes. Um, as people are kept on, on on this list and kind of pulled along year after year after year, especially those that are under uh, what is it? A TP um, TPS uh, TPS. Yes. yes. Temporary protected status. Right. So which is being withdrawn now as well. Yeah. 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 And so you know you think about you and 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 I love the way that you phrase that. You know. So when the Trump administration came into office and they said, we're going to be tough and we're going to deport every eligible person, mm-hmm. what they what they essentially did was in the past administrations, you know, you can go back to the Reagan administration for this. Right. Um, there have been there have been countless people who were eligible for deportation, but the administration uh, and successive administrations would make up priority lists of you know, we're only going to deport someone if they X. We're only going to deport someone if Y. What the Trump administration said, we're just going to deport everybody, anybody we can find. Right. And what that meant, as you said, was they ended up they're, – they're, they're ending up deporting the easiest people to find. Right. And I think what has been, you know, so remarkable in this process is – uh, you know, that you see, for example, um, you know, there's this story in southern Illinois of the the man who ran the local restaurant for 20 years uh, in a town that voted like 97 percent for Donald Trump. And nobody can understand. They, they're like, well, we were anti-immigrant, but not, you know, the guy not down him. at the not not him. That yeah. wasn't who we met. But but, you know, he's someone who had a final order of deportation against him. You know, the the wife of a of a of a decorated soldier recently was mm-hmm. deported. I mean. This is what's happening uh, under these kinds of policies. And as you say, it's simply because um, they're they're, you know, just taking everyone that they can find. And we really haven't seen that kind of arbitrary sort of uh, dragnet policy ever put in place before. Yeah. You know, and and it's really it's really cheap um, because there's very little real police work or investigative work that goes into this. It's not It's not uh, based on a position uh, of uh, public safety mm-hmm. because the folks that are in these programs, they are generally employed. They are law-abiding. They are checking in as, as they're supposed to. Uh, and so to, to remove them, like I said, it, it becomes, it's not even arbitrary. There's something really sinister uh, about an action like that. And I think it is... Um well, it, it's hard to argue that the purpose of that isn't uh, to be as kind of capricious and to strike as much fear as possible. Yeah. You know, I think one even gets the impression that the administration often engages in these policies, not because they think there's any real practical 
policy value in them, mm-hmm. but just simply because they look tough and they look mean and they look as though this is I'm uh, we're being aggressive and really rounding up people. Right. Um, you know, I mean, you know, during the course of the family separation uh, issue. Uh, you know, you had the president literally go out and say, well, you know, some of these kids could be MS-13, you know, this this gang that oh, he loves to goodness. pick on. I don't know how many three-year-olds are gang members. I, right. I just – I'm not aware uh, of that. And, you know, what we've seen in that and, – and part of, I think, what really is demonstrable of that is, of course, that we've now seen that, you know, th- this administration started separating families. And they never had a plan to put them back together. And you know what? I think that was probably all the more effective from a from a uh, standpoint of we want to cause the maximum amount of harm and discomfort and And fear. Yes. And fear. uh, And we'll just let things sort themselves out. Mm -hmm. And of course, of course, there there will be uh, there will be some pushback. People will not be happy with it, but it's going to take us a certain amount of time. uh, And they're still working to figure uh, things out. But meanwhile, these children, these, these parents, they are the ones who have to, uh, to live with the, uh, the, this, uh, the traumatic, you know, um, the distress of that. Um, let, let me ask you this, because we're looking at an administration that continues to be, I shouldn't say unpredictable. They're doing exactly the things that they right. said they would, right. they would do. That's fair. Right. But uh, they're also the type of administration that, I guess, that keeps you all busy. Right. So so what are are there any particular um, actions uh, that are forthcoming uh, with regard to the current administration? Maybe some things that are not making as much uh, national uh, headlines right now, but things that we can expect to probably hit start hitting a new cycle. I think so. Um, you, you know, let me just that the point you make about keeping busy and 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 that you know it's i just a couple of things mm-hmm. so you know the ACLU has been around for nearly 100 years and yeah. you know during that nearly 100 year time we've sued every president who sat in the oval <laughs> office um we're 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 an equal opportunity litigator right um but you know what's amazing is we sued Donald Trump 150 times in his first year in office wow uh and you know that was something that was just you know heretofore just just unseen in terms of uh, in terms of that kind of uh, uh, that kind of the thing, but you know, it was, it was remarkable to me. It's on the family separation. So we we take the Mizell case and turn it into a class action, and we go in front of a judge in San Diego, and the judge says that the government has to to reunify these families, and he gives them two deadlines to do it: the first one for children under five, and then on July twenty sixth for all children. And they fail to meet the deadline. Yeah, there are still more than five hundred kids that are separated. Mm-hmm. Um. Then we say we continue to go into court and say if they'll give us the information, you know, we can reach out to NGOs, to others and start helping to find these kids, et cetera. And, you know, last Thursday and, and I, you know, we go into the weekend and sometimes in the weekend, you know, it's busy in the summer and you miss things. There's this amazing story. Mm-hmm. The United States government, the United States Department of Justice, when the ACLU said will help in terms of doing this. They actually filed a motion with this federal court in San Diego in which they said, you know, the ACLU should do it. Really? We'll just let them. They have the resources. We'll just let them do it. Never, you know, they they, they were simply more than 500 children still separated. They were going to abandon Mm -hmm. their responsibility and just leave this to 
an NGO or, you know, uh, interest group like the ACLU to do. I mean, I, I think it, it's a demonstrable not just of the cruelty that we were talking before, but there's a level of incompetence in this. Absolutely. And those two things combined are really dangerous. Yeah. Um, so let me answer your question about other <laughs> kinds of things that, that I think there's two things. And, and you know, um, one of them has gotten a little bit of attention uh, one of them I mentioned previous. Mm-hmm. Um, the previous one was I mentioned we just filed this suit yesterday having to do with uh, the issue of uh, oh, asylum, was, asylum. Yeah, and, right. and, and, and not allow, you know, hoping to block the administration, again, from, from squeezing people out of the asylum process, um, clearly in an effort just to limit the number of people coming from asylum. So I think, I think that's one to watch. Yeah. Uh, the other one is, and we're part of a broad civil rights group, uh, or civil rights gr- uh, groups that are that are uh, pursuing this. But as you know, the Commerce Department has added to the 2020 Census this question about citizenship. Right. And and so you know there uh, was just a comment period that ended yesterday where people could make comments to 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 be able to speak out on 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 opposing that. But what we're also now seeing is. Uh, you know, there's also litigation that the ACLU and other civil rights organizations are involved in uh, in an attempt to try to, uh, you know, get that question off of the census in order to encourage participation. Um, that's, I think, an important thing to watch. I think I think that will merit watching as we go forward. Um, and the last thing I'll say is is that, you know, we're going to see lots of litigation over the way that Customs and Border Patrol and ICE are behaving in our neighborhoods, in our communities, uh, and on the border. I think I think whether it's seizing uh, people's property at the border or whether it has to do with the question of, um, you know, how they conduct these raids here in the, uh, uh, you know, in an area like Chicago, I think we're going to see a lot of attention around that. Mm. So are there any... Um, when it comes to coordination uh, between the ACLU, Illinois, uh, and I, I imagine with such, because you got like what 1.5 million members or something like that. We have a we have a little over uh, two million members across the country. We have uh, more than seventy five thousand here in Illinois. I always tell this story when I left the office on election day in 2016 Mm -hmm. we had a little fewer than 14,000 members and today we have about 75,000 members wow um so you know uh the trump administration may be bad for the country i guess they're good for business for us but (laughs) all in all i just as soon skip it i mean you know if if we didn't have to yeah okay well it it has been a pleasure talking to you time's gone quickly yes it has (laughs) we appreciate you uh being here uh folks you can make you can keep up with the aclu um, at uh, ACLU slash Illinois IL dot org. Right, right. ACLU dash IL dash dot org. Yeah, slash. Right. I'm sorry. Dash. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tariq. Uh, Radio Slam family, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a minute. Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff 
and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. And now we have an eight-year-old on the line. Welcome to Our World Today. What's your question? Our continents make up 29% of the Earth's surface meaning that 71% is comprised of water. Man automatically adapts to environmental conditions. So why do I need to take swimming lessons? Are you ready for kids who eat healthy? Good nutrition can lead to great things. To find out how a healthy lifestyle can help your child succeed, go to mypyramid.gov. Brought to you by the Ad Council and USDA. When Dad needed help getting around, I became his driver. Soon enough, it was up to me to be his housekeeper and financial manager, too. When he moved in, I became his cook and even his nurse. But no matter what roles I play, I know I'm still his daughter. We understand the roles you play. So to help, we created aarp.org caregiving, where you can connect with experts and other caregivers. Visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Would your business survive a disaster? Nearly two-thirds of businesses aren't prepared for an emergency and 40% of businesses that experience a disaster never recover. Make an emergency plan now before it's too late. For a free online tool that helps you develop an emergency plan to keep your business up and running should disaster strike, visit ready.gov forward slash business. Brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the American Red Cross, and the Ad Council. Assalamualaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Al-Amin, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. For those of you who are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. We're on every evening from 6 to 7 p.m. coming to you from the wonderful city of Chicago and you can keep up with us by following us on social media you'll find us on Facebook Twitter and Instagram at Radio Islam USA that's at Radio Islam USA and last but not least well I shouldn't say last but do yourself a kindness do yourself a favor and make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss out on any more of these wonderful conversations that we have here you'll find us wherever you are so if you're on itunes tune in google uh, google or uh, soundcloud no it's google play let's get that right uh, you'll find us at radio slam usa so we are um uh, excited to have on the line uh with us bettina chang she is the a co-founder of City Bureau, right? So she's the editorial director at City Bureau, a former executive digital editor of Chicago Magazine. She's also worked at uh, DNA Info, Chicago, Pacific Standard, and the education nonprofit Supplies for Dreams. And we are pleased to welcome her to Radio Slam. Welcome, Bettina. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, yeah, it's our honor. So, uh, City Bureau, this is a uh, just a, a wonderful outfit that uh, <laughs> that you guys have, 
And uh, yeah. yeah, you do such such great work, and you've got a fellowship that's coming up. But before we get into the fellowship, for those uh, who may may not be aware or familiar with the work of City Bureau, could you kind of just paint a picture of, of of how you came about and and what your what your mission is? Yeah, so City Bureau is a uh, a civic journalism lab, and so what that means is that we do journalism in a way that's creative and a little bit experimental, and um, most importantly to us has a focus on uh, equity as well as uh, community-centered journalism. So we are based on the south side of Chicago, and we work on the south and west sides of Chicago because we take an equity lens, and when you look at uh, what does that mean in Chicago, it means uh, working with communities that don't get access to a lot of good, um, you know, useful news and information from the traditional news media here. So that's why uh, we're working with our communities on the south and west sides to not only create better media, but also um, teach people how to use media skills in a way that helps them create change in their communities. Mm. So you are a hub of, um, as, as far as education is concerned, with regard to uh, how to engage or how to how to become media professionals. Right, certainly. Um, we have a lot of people come to us who are interested in being uh, professional journalists, but we also believe that the skills that you learn are uh, useful in a lot of different contexts. So we have folks who are just trying to get more involved in their neighborhoods. Um, you know, we, we host free trainings and we pay people to do small assignments. Um, throughout the city. So if anybody's interested and in, in, in Chicago, we would love to um, have y'all in to uh, any of our free trainings or our free workshops. Um, we just like to, you know, have good conversations about media and, and civics and what does it mean to tie it all together? Right. This idea of, I shouldn't say the idea, but that what you've put into practice, uh, being situating yourselves in a community that many would say uh, is underrepresented, or and and sometimes I would even I'd go further, a step further, and say underinformed. Mm-hmm. Um, so right. that that appears that that was a very uh, a deliberate, a very deliberate choice for you all. Um, right, definitely. In fact, what I would say is that the community is misrepresented. Um, mm. you might, if you were to Google the word Woodlawn, which is the neighborhood where our newsroom is, right. it comes up, but it comes up very often only in negative context, and it's just not a, it's just not an accurate reflection of what the community is like. Mm. And I would feel that a lot of uh, other neighborhoods in Chicago feel that same way, especially neighborhoods where it's mostly people of color living there. Um, so we're just sort of trying to correct this misrepresentation presentation while also giving people, um, you know, more agency, equipping them with the tools so that they can they could change that narrative. Mm. So this this feeling of empowerment that people feel what's I'm assuming, right? I'm assuming that there's a feeling of empowerment that comes with that. Uh, yeah, we sure hope so. <laughs> yeah. uh, has, has that been has that been expressed uh, to you by folks who maybe were not necessarily media uh, media savvy, uh, but. But if, you know, they've come through this, this period of this, this awakening. Um... Yeah, definitely. What we hear a lot from people is that they feel like they would want to be more involved in their community, right? Like um, they, they, they have this feeling of like, oh, maybe something's gone wrong and I want to do something about it. But they're not quite sure how to go about like getting a jump start there. And um, a lot of people have seemed to use our programs to sort of, um, you know, give them a sort of kick in the pants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, here are some skills that you can use, and here are some places where you can use them. And then, 
you know, you go ahead and do what you want with that. Um, you know, we're here to support you. That's the feeling that we get. Okay. You know, and I also, and, and let me know if this is a mischaracterization uh, or missing something, but I feel that is there sort of like a crowdsourcing element that, that that's also a part of this with regard to um, how stories are, are, are created or, or formed and, and, and told? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we like to think that our, our stories sort of run on people power, right? Like, we, we would never want to tell the story of the community without getting a lot of people's uh, feedback. So our um, we have a few different programs. Like I said, you know, we work with people who, who aren't interested in journalism but just want to learn the skills. But we also do work with um, emerging journalists um, in our fellowship. And um, and what we have them do is make sure they're they're getting community feedback all along the way while they're reporting. So mm-hmm. the traditional model of reporting is like a reporter goes out, you know, interviews a few people, writes a story and publishes it. And then after it's published, then people can comment on it or, you know, say whatever they want about it. Right. Um, we think that that model is like really missing out on an opportunity to create a, a valuable dialogue. And right. so we have our reporters start that conversation while they're in the middle of their reporting rather than after the story's been published. Mm. And I would assume that there there are a whole lot, uh, a whole lot fewer retractions uh, and corrections <laughs> <laughs> involved with that type of reporting. Yeah, we'd like to think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, with regard to the fellowship, so for those who are who maybe already have a foot into the field, right, they're, they're, they have some familiarity or they're, they're working towards becoming, um, you know, paid journalists, the, is, is the fellowship, is that a, a venue that, uh, that they would look at as, you know, as something's going to take them from, from level one to level two? Yeah, definitely. So the fellowship is for emerging journalists. So it doesn't matter what age you are or how much schooling you have. As long as you have just like some exposure to the um, the journalism field, maybe through internships or working at a school paper or, um, you know, publishing on your own blog, mm-hmm. whatever it may be, we are looking for you to come and apply for a fellowship. Uh, it's pretty, it's a low lift. It's for a lot of people have, have completed the fellowship while having part-time or full-time jobs. Um, it's 12 hours a week. Uh, it's a um, 10 week program, and it's a $2,000 stipend to come and work on cool stories with us, um, you know, learn from other journalists. Um, there's a mentoring component too. So if you like working with young people, that's a, that's a big bonus. And um, yeah, we think the fellowship is a great way to really start honing your skills in journalism and, and be ready to dive into the industry. Wow. Wow. That, that, that's pretty awesome. Um, so a, a stipend <laughs> as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, journalism is hard work, and we think people deserve to get paid doing it. Um, mm-hmm. As are you know the other programs that we run, um, the documentaries program, which is an open enrollment program. Anybody can sign up and start getting these free trainings. And once you have gone to a training, then you're eligible to pick up uh, paid assignments for things like attending a public meeting or annotating a document. Um, you know, like things that are maybe like three or four hour commitments mm-hmm. um, that you might be interested in taking on and getting paid for. Well, well, I see now how you introed, you talked about, you use uh, um, creativity, you know, creativity is a creative lab. And these sound, these are, these are extremely uh, creative ways of, of going about um, covering, covering news and preparing people to be able to, you know, uh, contribute to that. So uh, let me ask, how did the fellowship come about? Is that something that you all kind of hit the ground running with when you opened up shop? Yeah. 
the fellowship was our first program, actually, and um, City Bureau, there's there's four of us co-founders, uh, myself, Daryl Holiday, Andrea Hart, and Harry Backland, and all four of us uh, worked in different parts of journalism for a few years, um, or sort of jumped around, um, but we all sort of saw the same similar problems bubbling up where we were working, and um, a lot of those were centered around this idea of, like, you know, why do people not trust journalists? Um, why is it that a lot of the coverage of communities of color is um, is negative or, or misrepresentative, and how come um, there are not that? How come newsrooms aren't more diverse than they are? Um, and those problems all sort of revolve around each other. And so, you know, as we were sort of uh, having our our separate conversations about, you know, what are we sort of dissatisfied with, and what do we wish journal our our journalism careers could be, we started to create this ideal. And that idea ended up shaping into this fellowship. Like, if, if we could start over in, in journalism, like, what experience would have been perfect to, to um, prepare us to do really good, responsible, ethical reporting? Right, right. Well, the idea <clears throat> the idea that you all have put in practice is um, to have community-centered, community-based uh, journalism that's open and accessible uh, to the to the communities that it's looking to represent, uh, mm-hmm. I think that is such a powerful statement. Have you have you heard from other folks who who who've looked to possibly try to replicate that in other areas? Yeah, actually, I mean, we've got such great response, and we've worked with some really wonderful partners. Um, one of the programs that we do is called the Public Newsroom. Um, so every Thursday, we open up our newsroom at sixty one hundred South Blackstone. Um, to anybody who wants to come for a free workshop, and that's Thursday at 6 p.m. So this program is super exciting, and and it's been really successful thus far, and we're actually working with uh, people at Mississippi Today um, in the Mississippi Delta to replicate that model um, in their sort of rural newsroom. We're really excited to see how that pans out there. Um, and at the same time, we're doing the documentaries program, which I mentioned to you, is the free trainings and the paid assignments. The documentaries program currently has a pilot project running in Detroit where we partnered with uh, WDET, which is the NPRA affiliate there in Detroit. Okay. Now, are there any any folks that may be Chicagoans? All right, because that's that's our our live listening audience, uh, well, the antenna uh, listening audience, uh, are there any folks that they might recognize that who've come through the fellowship? Yeah, um, we've worked with a few different folks who we really love. Um, you mentioned that you already know Bashira Mack. Yes, yes. Shout out <laughs> to Bashira. <laughs> she's an excellent person. Um, you know, we've worked with Tunika Johnson, who has been working on this folded map photojournalism project. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have seen her. She was a Chicagoan of the year last year, and she's been on TV talking about her um, current exhibit at the Loyola University Museum of Art. Right. Um so folks like that, um, Charles Tustin is one of our former fellows who was really active in the Save CSU movement, okay. um, and he, he came to us um, after working on that movement and uh, has been sort of in our network since then. Um, yeah, there are a lot of folks who, I mean, I, I can't say enough for our <laughs> former fellows. I love them. They, they've all, you know, we've all grown together, so yeah. Yeah. I could probably go on forever about them. <laughs> you know, uh, there's something else about being community-based, community-centered, um, and this is in this current within this current uh, narrative of people distrusting the media or being fostered to have this distrust uh, mm-hmm. of the media. Um, how do you see that? 
Well, just, yeah, I just want to, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think it's just such a, once again, such a wonderful thing to have um, people, you know, having media based in the community. Uh, yeah, could you, do you have any particular thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question. And a lot of people now are talking about it, um, which which is good for us, right? Like, because I think it's always been a problem. And, um, you know, we, we it hadn't really been in the national conversation until recently. Yeah. My feeling is that, you know, it's a little bit of both, right? Like, there is media certainly for a lot of communities hasn't done enough to, to show people, you know, what is worthy that we're doing that, you know, that you should consider worth contributing to. Um, And media has to do a better job of of saying like, hey, like this is why the news is important and and being able to tell those stories in a way that's both responsible and, you know, like useful, actually pragmatic for people. Um, And on the other hand, you know, I think there's a feeling of disengagement. A lot of people feel like, you know, they don't don't have power to make change in their communities and that's why they sort of disengage from the news cycle because it's depressing, right? Like a lot of the stories just make you feel bad about the neighborhood that you live in right. or, or the city or the country or whatever. Um, and, and it doesn't give a lot of solutions. It doesn't, it doesn't show you how to, um, how to do something about it. And, and that's how we get people feeling like really disengaged and not caring that much about the news. So that's why we think it's so, so important. You know, what City Bureau does is, is we're trying to show people the value, uh, not just of the journalism that we create, but the skills that we use while we create it, right? right. Like when I, when I conduct an interview, like, sure, I'm a journalist and, and that interview might get published, but that doesn't mean that, you know, anybody else can't um, also conduct an interview that's going to be useful to them in their future, right? That they might, like, interview their grandmother about their family history, or yeah. they might interview, you know, their alderman because they live in the ward and, and they want to know more about, like, what this alderman is doing for them. Um, these are skills that anybody can use and, and that, you know, we're teaching to everybody because we think that the more that people understand how journalism is created, the more they can understand why it's valuable. Right. And then also there, there's something else that, that, that I see this extremely important, this idea of transparency. Um, mm. And when it comes to um, journalistic integrity, uh, that's not being influenced by by advertising dollars. Um, that's not being, you know, that's not compromised by, by other interests. Um, and I see City Bureau, you know, in that light, you know, having full uh, control, you know, editorial uh, control over, over, what it, over what it puts out, but at what cost, right? This is something that means mm-hmm. that there's a there's a need for support. Can you talk about how how folks can uh, can support that uh, aspect? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you're so right. It is it's so important for people to understand who's funding the news that that they're reading and. and you know, if there's any sort of um, ulterior motive or, you know, like even just an influence, right? Right. Um, So City Bureau is mostly uh, funded now by private foundations, Mm -hmm. and that we are a nonprofit, 501c3 nonprofit. Um, So, you know, that's not to say that all, that like all foundations have have no motives or anything like that, (laughs) but what it does give us is like sort of a cushion right now to work on building the trust and, and, and gaining, um, you know, the admiration of the people who we work with so that we can be funded uh, mostly by donations, uh, by, by individual donations. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So yeah, any any contribution you make to City Bureau is tax deductible. Um, it ensures that our programming remains free, uh, which we think is extremely important. Mm-hmm. And it, it it ensures that the people who do the work of journalism for us um, get paid. So it, they might be professional journalists or they might just be people like um, anyone who's listening um, mm-hmm. who could get paid because of the money that we are receiving currently from foundations and hopefully in the near future from individual donors. So right now we have uh, over 100 members of our press club. Um, so if you donate $8 a month, uh, which is the price of a Netflix subscription, mm-hmm. um, you can join our press club and get all sorts of cool perks, um, you know, get invited to cool events and, um, you know, uh, get an inside peek of what's going on at City Bureau. And at the same time, you know that you're sort of, you're participating in this really exciting media revolution. Yes, yes. I have to say that you all, you all hit it out the park with the name. I just think City Bureau is just a... Uh, a fabulous name, really. You know. Thank you. I will tell Daryl who made up that name. He'll be so excited yes. to hear that. <laughs> We're um, quite fond of it, also. Yeah, I'm sure. So, um, when it comes to article submissions, do you all take? Uh, do you take submissions? You know, from the the general public. You know, so City Bureau, um, we don't publish uh, work on our own website. We mm-hmm. always partner with other news outlets to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could certainly submit something, but we would still have to place it elsewhere, right? Because we don't have our own. Um, we have a website, but it's not like a news website. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, so I would say if you have a submission, we are partners with Southside Weekly, which is an excellent um, weekly news magazine that is actually based out of the same office as us, and they do take submissions. So if if anyone listening is interested, I'm sure Southside Weekly would love to hear from you. Yeah. And you mentioned that you all are in the, the, the Woodlawn area, which is uh, near and dear to me. I went to school at Hyde Park High School. Oh, great. Many, 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 many. <laughs> many, many moons ago. Uh, but my family, I have family that, that live uh, probably not far from you on the 63rd um, area. Oh, uh, great. Yeah, yeah come yeah. on down to the public newsroom. Yeah, now, when is the public newsroom? It's every Thursday at 6 p.m. Um, and I would say like maybe 80% of the newsrooms are, are held at 6100 South Blackstone, um, inside Build Coffee, actually, which is in the same building as our newsroom. Okay. Um, excellent partners there. And um, once in a while, we have them off-site, so we do have some newsrooms. Um, we have one coming up on the west side in North Lawndale, and we had just recently wrapped one up at Asakar in Little Village. So if you're interested, come on down. If you have a suggestion, we love getting suggestions for what the workshop should be or even where we should be hosting them. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for instance, when we had it at Asukar, the ice cream shop, it was just like an excellent venue because people just kept stopping in to grab ice cream and then, you know, hung around to see what people were talking about. Right. Um, and that's what we love. We love sort of, be, you know, really integrating into, like, what is already going on in a neighborhood. Mm, yeah, that that is wonderful. That is wonderful. So, yeah, we're going to have to work it out. Uh, maybe we can uh, uh, do a recording and, and sneak out because... Uh, we're supposed to be on air from six to seven, so uh, yeah, we'll we'll just have to record <laughs> so we can come <laughs> join you guys. Um, it has been a pleasure talking to you, Bettina. If you before we let you go, could you would you go ahead and just tell folks again uh, what they need to know about the fellowship, how they can uh, how they can apply, be considered for it. Yeah, definitely. So the um, the fellowship, the applications are actually due on Friday at midnight. So you just have two more days left. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but if you heard me on this radio show, you can always ask for an extension because uh, I don't want to miss out on any of your very bright um, listeners who Aww. might be like thinking, <laughs> how am I going to have time to apply by then? Um, but yeah, if you just go to our website, it's www.citybureau.org, and there's a little um, black box at the top of the the site that says that has a link to the application there. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Please continue doing the great work, and hopefully, uh, we'll see you at one of the uh, one of the Thursday night uh, newsrooms. Yeah, we'd yeah. love to see you there. Maybe y'all can host your own workshop too. Okay. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> great to talk to you. <laughs> likewise, likewise. Thanks so much. All right. All right, Radio Islam family. That was Bettina Chang, one of the co-founders of City Bureau. Um, and we got some great information about their fellowship. Uh, remember, citybureau.org. You want more info, want to apply, you've got until Friday. Okay, folks, uh, thanks for tuning in. Thank our engineers over at WCEV. We thank our engineer and producer in studio, the impressive one, Ibrahim Beg. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guests are theirs and are to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. Okay, family, we're going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.